Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Elhamdülillahi Rabbil Alemin Ve sallallahu ve sellem ve baraka ala seyyidina ve mevlana Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem Allahumma alimna ma yenfe'una ve anfe'na bima allemtena ve zidna min fadrika ilman ve ta'liman inneke ala kulli şeyin kadir ve ba'd Esselamu aleykum ve rahmetullahi ve berekatuhu Alhamdulillah, it is good to be back and back into the swing of things with our regular programs. And of all of the programs that we've done over the years here, this program, the Farda'in program, I feel has been the one with the most barakah. I really feel that because of the iqbal, the reception and the eagerness of people within our community, each and every one of you and others who are watching it through the live stream, as well as others who are not here in our city, who are elsewhere in the US, in North America, and even around the world. And Alhamdulillah is from the blessings of Allah Ta'ala that when you type up Farda'in in the Google search bar, or the YouTube search bar rather, this class is the first result, alhamdulillah. And we've covered a lot of ground. Those of you who have been with us from the very beginning will remember we started talking about the absolute basic foundations of our belief, what we believe as Muslims, because Iman is the foundation of everything. After that, we talked about the bridge between what we believe and what we do. And that was about the transmission of Islam. What is the understanding we have regarding scholarship and qualified authorities and how we learn and follow that. And after that, we went straight into the action or the ritual part of the Fard'ain. We talked about who remembers what was the next thing after module two? What was module three? I'll see who's paying attention here. What was module three? Fasting. Now that's against the proper order. The proper order would be tahara, then salat, then fasting. But we did Ramadan, the fasting first, because when we started it, it was two weeks before Ramadan started, so it made sense to do it then. So after Ramadan, we then started with tahara, ritual purity. And then we went into salat. And then we went into, after salat, what did we cover? Zakat. We covered zakat, the how-to of zakat. After zakat, we then went into, what was next? Hmm? Family matters. So family fiqh in general, al-ahwal al-shakhsiyya. So it was marriage as well as divorce, the rights of children, the rights of parents, family ties, and so on. And that's where we left off. So that is in the realm of interactions, right? Mu'amalat, and that's where we are right now. So when we look at the sharia, the sacred law of Islam, revealed by Allah Ta'ala in the Holy Qur'an and upon the blessed tongue of His Prophet Sallallahu and what is derived from those two sources, 
we find that the Sharia, the Islamic law, consists largely of three components. There are the ibadat, the ritual worship, the acts of tahara and salat and fasting, zakat and hajj and so on. These are ritual acts of worship. Some of them are with our body, some of them are with our wealth, such as zakat. And these are the core obligations, the things that we do and we should know very well in our life because why? Because we're doing them all the time. You're gonna, no matter who you are as a Muslim, tahara is something that comes into your life daily. And you're praying and you're most likely fasting every Ramadan. And most likely you have some money and you have to pay zakat on it. And hajj is an obligation on you at least once in your life. So these are the ibadat. Now unfortunately, many people don't even know the fardain of their ibadat. And of people who learn their deen, many people only learn the ibadat and they don't, they don't learn the second aspect of sharia, which is the mu'amalat. What's mu'amala? What's that in English? Mu'amala. Relationships, possibly, yeah. Um, per interpersonal matters, transactional issues. The mu'amala is how you interact with someone or something, right? And this is from bab mufa'ala, which is musharaka, to do something as a group. Two or three or more people doing something together. So mu'amala is basically marriage, divorce, inheritance, buying and selling, anything that involves other people or other things and property and all of this falls under this bab of mu'amalat. And when you look in the books of law, especially the larger works, you find that usually the first three to four volumes are dedicated to the first category, worship. But the rest of the work is dedicated to the second and third, transactions. And then towards the end, you get the third category, which is jinayat, or criminal law. Everything that has to do with statecraft, judges, court issues, court testimony, prescribed punishments, meaning the hudud, the discretionary punishments that the imam may enforce, the ta'zir, uh, all of these kinds of matters. Now of these three, which ones are the most important for us? All of them are important. That's correct. They are, they are all important, but for us in our daily life, are we going to be dealing with any criminal law? Most likely not. Most li unless you're a Qaldi, unless you are in the state apparatus of some Islamic society where Sharia is the law of the land, you're not going to be dealing with the Fiqh Jinayat. It's important to know, but it's not really something an ordinary everyday Muslim has to know. It's not Fardain for you to know the inner workings of qada. You don't have to know how that works. But the first two, you do have to know. It's not enough just to know how to pray and fast. You also need to know how to buy and sell. 
and the rights and responsibilities of marriage and so on and so forth. Now, how many of you spend money? If you don't spend money, raise your hand. Okay. How many of you buy and sell? Well, everyone buys and sells. So that means because you have money, you spend money, you buy and sell, you need to know, you have to know the basics of sound transactions in Islamic law so that your transactions can be protected from anything haram. So that's why we learn these things. So these are the three aspects of Sharia. We have more or less covered number one. There's other, there's, we didn't cover Hajj because we said that comes as something you learn in detail once the obligation is upon you and you have the means. Transactions, we're still in this area for, for a little bit. Criminal law, of course, we're not going to cover. So what we're going to cover in this module, I don't anticipate it taking too long, maybe three, four sessions, because we want to cover the basics. We cannot cover every single conceivable issue in Mu'amala because there's too many. And modern financial tools and means of, of, of trade are so complex and varied that it becomes a question of law, the fiqh, and a question of fact. What are those things and how do we understand them? And those are modern questions that require ijtihad. We're going to look at the basics that every Muslim should know. And anything that goes beyond those basics that are in their life, they need to go ask a mufti. They need to find the answer to the particular question about this or that transaction that is outside of the general framework of fard'ain knowledge for buying and selling. So what we're going to learn, we start with the asl, the foundation, which is the default regarding business transactions. And then we want to talk about the broad ethics of buying and selling, just the, the basic guidelines we need to know as buyers and as sellers. And then we want to look at just the basics of transaction law, namely the conditions for a valid sale or transaction. We want to look at permissible sales, not exhaustively, but just we'll give an example of common forms of sales that are permissible in essence. And then we want to look at the prohibitions in sales. What are those things we are forbidden from in terms of transactions? And that is mostly revolving around three or four issues, which is haram products or usury, riba, and gharar, or something that's halal in essence, but is going to be used for something haram. So the prohibitions revolve around those three or four things. And we'll look at them individually and modern examples, uh, at least to the best of our ability, inshallah ta'ala. So going to the foundations, we always talk about principles, because if you know the principles well, then you, you, an you can answer for yourself a lot of the questions that may arise by understanding the principles. We mentioned before, I don't remember which module it was, it was probably module two, that there's a principle, a maxim in Islamic law, which says, al-aslu fil ashya al-ibaha. That means that the default regarding matters is permissibility. So wearing a blue hat 
What is the hukum shar'i for that? What's the legal ruling in sharia for wearing a blue hat? People say halal, but there's a technical word we use here. What is it? Mubah, which means neutral, right? Uh, okay, here's some examples I thought of. Drinking water with a straw. Is that haram, makruh, wajib? It's mubah, it's neutral. What about walking to the store? Good answer. Depends on the store. Walking to the grocery store to buy alcohol. <laughs> now, what is the hukum of that walking? That is walking of masiyah, right? The fuqaha talk about this. You know, the the ruchas, the dispensations you're allowed when you're traveling, when you go outside of the city limits to shorten your prayers and not fast if you want to break your fast. They limit that to the person whose travel is uh, travel that is in obedience to Allah Ta'ala. Safaru ma'asiyah, where a person is traveling to Las Vegas to gamble, for instance. That would be safaru ma'asiyah, a journey taken for the purpose of sinning. They wouldn't allow you to use those dispensations when you're traveling in a sinful state. But so that's a walking to the store, to a grocery store to buy apple juice. Smubah. And eating snow. Let's assume the snow is clean. Not the colored snow. Not the colored snow. Just eating snow. Right. You can think of so many examples. That's the default regarding basic matters in the world. Now, we did mention in the chapter, the section on marriage that there is an exception. There's two exceptions here. They say, The default regarding matters is permissibility. But the default regarding The default regarding meat and intimate relations is that they are haram by default until established as halal. Right? And we talked about that in the issue of marriage. But this is the default, and those are exceptions. So the question is, if the basis, the foundation, the default for things is permissibility, what about transactions? Are they also permissible by default? Or are we only allowed a very narrow set of transactions we can engage in as Muslims? The answer is, just like the first maxim, we have another maxim mentioned by the scholars, al-aslu fil mu'amalat al-ibaha. So the same thing. The default regarding transactions is, permissi- is permissibility. That means that basic transactions that we conduct among ourselves as human beings, their default is permissibility, except for the specific things that are prohibited within the Qur'an and the Sunnah, and the things that are new, which resemble them closely enough to where they are considered to be essentially the same thing, right? Now, this means that we don't have to prove that it's permissible for us to buy and sell. We don't have to prove it from the Qur'an and the Sunnah that it's permissible to buy and sell. Nevertheless, we look in the Qur'an and the Sunnah and we do find evidence that buying and selling is by default permissible. 
And we see a couple of examples that I put here in the slides. Allah Ta'ala says in Surah Al-Ma'idah, Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, awfu bil'uqood. O you who believe, fulfill your contracts. This is the command of Allah. Fulfill your contracts. Fulfill your agreements. And al-uqood here, they say that the lamb is for istighraq. It encompasses every form of contract and agreement. Of course, it has to be with sound conditions, but it encompasses all sorts, which means that the default is that business transactions are permissible. Because why would Allah tell us to fulfill things that are by default haram, the default halal? Likewise, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that it is not permissible for Muslims to consume the wealth of one another falsely or unjustly, bilbatil, illa an takuna tijaratan an taradin minkum, unless the transactions between you and the other is commerce done with mutual consent. Taradin minkum. Mutual consent means that you as the seller and him as the buyer are both happy with this transaction, right? That is the basic condition. Taradi, what's the opposite of that? The person's forced to buy something they don't want to buy. That's not taradi. So in this verse, Allah does not mention any other conditions for buying and selling except mutual consent. That is what permits our business transactions. And we see this in daily life. And sometimes it's implicit and sometimes it's explicit in what people say. Likewise, Allah Ta'ala says, Allah has permitted sales and prohibited usury. So bay'ah here is open-ended, right? And in Arabic, bay'ah as a word, bay'ah can also include selling. So buying and selling can be included in that word. So Allah has permitted trade between both parties and he has prohibited usury. So this is open-ended, and the only things that are prohibited are the specific things mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So this is our default, right? Now, to get a little philosophical here, the Prophet ﷺ forbade very specific types of sales, and we're going to get into those later. But he did not explain the permissible ones. Is it permissible for the Prophet ﷺ to not explain something that requires explanation? That's not permissible. His duty is tabligh risala, to convey the message. And by him not explaining the permissible ones, it proves that the, the initial presumption, the asl, for the validity of a sale is that it's lawful. That proves the default. And Imam al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah, he, he echoed this, and he says that the general rule for all sales is permissibility, as long as they're conducted, concluded by consenting capable decision makers, except for what the Messenger of Allah وسلم, has forbidden. Or, pay attention to this, what is sufficiently similar to that which he has forbidden. So you have 
things he forbade very explicitly. And a thousand years later, you have some newfangled transaction that once we investigate it, we see that it is sufficiently similar to something he forbade. That means it too is forbidden, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks. He says, anything different from those is permissible following the permissibility of sales stated in the book of Allah. So that means that the default is permissibility in our sales. We just need to learn the basic conditions for their validity. And before we do that, I want to touch on the broad ethics of sales. This is Fardain knowledge that everyone should know, whether you're a buyer or a seller. One of Imam al-Shatibi, uh, one of the great Maliki jurists and usuris, he mentions in his al-Muwafaqat, which is about the objectives of Sharia, he mentions that one of the objectives behind the transaction laws in Islam, the conditions of buying and selling, the permissible and prohibited types of buying and selling, the, the objective behind these is to minimize uh, confusion, to minimize corruption, to minimize things that will spoil relationships, to prevent oppression, to prevent harm, to prevent discord between people. Because if the transaction is done improperly, violating the conditions set forth in Sharia, then it's very likely that the, the two people will start to fight each other. And these are presumably brothers or sisters in Islam, and now they're arguing with each other and they're fighting in a dispute because one or both did not fulfill the conditions of a valid sale. Right? So broad ethics that we should observe, number one is truthfulness and full disclosure. Uh, this is of course in the case of the seller. The seller has a product he or she wishes to sell, they have to give full and truthful information about the product. They can't sell a fake Rolex and call it the real Rolex. That's deception. That means they have to give full and truthful information about the product, including its type, its origin, and its cost. They can't keep the cost until the transaction has been concluded. That doesn't work. And you may wonder, how is that even possible? Because we deal with price tags on everything here, alhamdulillah. That makes life a lot easier. But in some places in the world, they don't put price tags on things. And in some places, they try to cheat and scam people by uh, holding back the price until the very last minute, until they get some kind of commitment by which they try to pressure that person to finish the sale. So you ask them, you're in a store, and you're looking at XYZ, and you say, how much is this? And they say, oh, don't worry about it. I'll give you a good price. I mean, I, it's common. It's not just one country, so don't think of one country, right? I've seen this in many countries. They'll say, oh, I'll give you a good price. No problem. Let's sit down and talk. Here, let's have some tea, let's chat. And now you feel committed because they've served you tea and cookies. It's like, okay, that cost them some money, so maybe I'd have to spend some money with them. And they just keep pushing it to the end. And sometimes they do elaborate games. They'll say, well, 
you know, the price is this, but I need to call someone to see if I can get a better price. They're not calling anyone. They're just pretending to talk on the phone. There's so many games. Whereas if you ask them in the beginning, what is the price? And they say, this is the price. You could say, okay, I accept it or I reject it. Give me a lower price. And they accept that or reject it, right? The Prophet wasallam says in the hadith recorded by Imam al-Tirmidhi, that all merchants are resurrected on the day of judgment as sinners, except for those who feared Allah, treated their customers well, and were truthful. We were just talking about the default, right? The default about transactions being permissible. Here the Prophet ﷺ is saying that the default is merchants will be resurrected sinful, except for those who have taqwa of Allah, who treat their customers well and are truthful. So if they are lying and defrauding, if they treat their customers poorly and they don't fear Allah in how they sell their goods, then they're resurrected as sinners on the day of judgment. As human beings, we need trade. We need buying and selling for civilization to flourish. So if these rules are not adhered to, it causes corruption in society. Another ethical consideration is ease of conduct. The seller and the buyer. It's not just the seller this time. The seller and the buyer should not be too harsh in the conditions they want to impose as they're haggling over the item, uh, whether it's insisting on prices that are too low or too high. You know, there's a, you know, if you, if you find someone who's, you could tell they're poor and they're trying to maintain their dignity and sell something that is, say, say they're selling eggs by, on the side of the road, and you could tell they're poor. It doesn't make sense for you to haggle them and, and give them a lowball offer. Just pay a fair price because they're trying to maintain their dignity. Likewise, it's inappropriate for the seller to, you know they do this, right? There's a hadith to this effect we'll explore where the Prophet wasallam forbade the, the person in the badia from transacting in the city. Why? Why would the Prophet ﷺ forbid someone from the middle of nowhere in Arabia from buying and selling in the city without a representative to help them? Why? Hmm? They get tricked, right? I, as an American man, can go to country A and let's say I want to buy a bar of soap. If I was a local, the bar of soap would cost 50 cents. But of course, it's quite obvious that I'm not from that country, so in many shops, that 50 cent bar of soap now becomes $5. This is very common. Until that person lives long enough to know the prices for goods, because there's no price tags, right? So you have to be wary of this. The Prophet ﷺ says, Allah is merciful to the man who is easy when he sells, easy when he buys, and when he collects his loans. So it's a value in Islam to not be that person who's shouting and arguing in the marketplace just to save $2. Sure, you can, you can haggle a little bit if that's your thing, uh, but it should be reasonable. It shouldn't be long-winded involving shouting and 
back and forth. This is not the way. Likewise, among the broad ethics of sales is to avoid swearing, even if truthful. This is in the case of the seller. It's recommended that a person not say wallahi in any sale whatsoever because it is unbecoming of the reverence one should have to the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're selling a dozen eggs. Why? Why would you say wallahi this and this and this? It, it's not appropriate. And the Prophet sallallahu says that swearing destroys the goods and wipes out their blessings. So this is the seller who wants to get customers so they, they swear by Allah that their products are the best, the best prices, the best this, the best that, and they want to pull people in and make them believe them by saying wallahi excessively. This is blameworthy. It is what it is. The product should stand on its own merit. Likewise, among the broad ethics of sales is to frequently pay sadaqah, to give sadaqah. The tajir, the merchant, should give sadaqah often. And this is to wipe away the sins they have acquired through that excessive swearing, if they did that, or hiding information, or maybe minimizing information, or any bad adab they observed while dealing with customers. The Prophet ﷺ says in a hadith, يُقَالْ uh, There's some weakness in the chain. It is said that the Prophet ﷺ says, addressing the tujjar, O merchants, the devil and sins are present at each sale. So purify your sales with charity. There is a hadith, it's a weak hadith too, which says that the suq or the marketplace is the masjid of, of who? Shaytan. So if shaytan was to have a masjid, a place that he frequents, it would be the marketplace. And the Prophet ﷺ encouraged us to say when we go into the marketplace, a particular dua. And everyone should memorize this dua because it applies to malls, it applies to grocery stores, it applies to any general place where lots of items are sold. And that is, is a very powerful dua and there's lots of reward for it. La ilaha illallah, wahdahu la sharika lah, lahu al-mulku wa lahu al-hamd, yuhyi wa yumid, wa huwa hayyun la yamut, biyadihi al-khayr, wa huwa ala kulli shay'in qadir. The Prophet ﷺ says, whoever says this, when they go into the marketplace, they receive elf, elf, one million hasanat written on their account, and one million errors removed from them, and they are raised one million degrees in the sight of Allah. It's tremendous. And that is because the suq is generally a place of ghafla, a place of heedlessness. And that is why the ulama say that it is uh, discouraged for a person to recite the Qur'an when they're at the marketplace attending to their wares when it's busy or to uh, send salawat uh, in certain circumstances when people are haggling, right? There's certain etiquette involved in that. Uh, lastly, in the etiquettes or the ethics of sales,
is documentation and witnessing of all debts. The default is that our word is bond. When we say we're going to do something, the default is that we're speaking the truth and that we take it seriously when someone else says that. However, I mean, verbal contracts are binding. However, they are not really enforceable if it becomes a he said, she said situation later on in the event of some difference. For this reason, it is desirable that all contracts and all loans be written down and that witnesses uh, are present and sign. And this includes for partial payments, debts, and so on. And we can just read the longest verse in the Quran for clarity about this. What is the longest verse of the Quran? Where is it located? Surah Al-Baqarah in the verse known as Ayatul Dain, the verse about debts. So that's recommended. So I, I, I'm unsure if we'll finish everything tonight, but we'll try to get as much done as we can. Now, we're still looking at the, the broad ethics of sales, not the particular conditions that we need to know. And transaction law can be very complex. And as I mentioned earlier, for very particular questions, they require very particular answers. And it becomes a question of law, fiqh, uh, and a question of fact. Right? If you go back to the zakat module, we talked about paying zakat on 401ks. Imagine a person who has studied the fiqh of zakat inside and out from one of the legal schools. They've mastered it, but they live on top of a mountain without Wi-Fi, without indoor plumbing even. And then you go up that mountain and you say, yeah, sheikh, what is the ruling on paying zakat on a 401k? Are they deficient in fiqh? No. They mastered their respective school of law. What's lacking here? Their understanding of what a 401k even is. So they can't answer that question for you until they know what a 401k is properly and they have an, a proper tasawwur, a conceptualization of it, and then they apply the fiqh to what they now understand properly. So a lot of the modern questions we get are, involve fiqh as well as fact. And one may know the fiqh, but the fact aspect may be very, uh, very hazy, may be unclear. So we're going to cover the general things that everyone needs to know. And as I mentioned before, if there's specific questions about very specific types of transactions, Put them in the anonymous uh, Ask the Imam email and uh, we'll, we'll try to look through them, inshallah. Now, for everyday buying and selling, what we need to know as Muslims are the conditions of a valid sale and the prohibitions in trade. So, the prohibitions we said involve haram products, usury, and Gharar, which I'm sure there's a really good English word for that, but because it's so varied and detailed in Islamic fiqh, I'll leave it as gharar. Basically, it's paying for what is unknown, paying for something you don't know.
And lastly, selling things that are halal in essence, but haram to sell because of their use. So let's say you have a big cornfield and you have, I don't know, you have two tons of corn and you get a representative from Jack Daniels. What do they make? They make corn-based whiskey and they want to buy your corn. Is corn halal to sell? In essence, yes. But in this case, you see the problem. They're going to use it. You have certainty they're going to use it to manufacture something haram. Haram. No? Yeah, we're going to talk about that in some detail. If you know it's going to be used for something haram, then it's haram to do the transaction, even if the thing is halal in essence, right? So grapes for a winemaker, corn for a whiskey maker, uh, or weapons. If you, if you see a street gang coming and let's say you, you have a gun shop, this is not, it's not really possible here because of the laws, but imagine a society where you don't have those kinds of laws we have here and you get a gang of people wanting to buy weapons and you know they're going to use it for engaging in violence, unjust violence against someone else. Can't sell it. But we'll get into that, inshallah. So today we just look at number one a little bit. What are the conditions of a valid sale slash trade? All right. When you think of your, your daily comings and goings in life and how you use your money, how you engage in sales, Maybe you're thinking about that trip to the grocery store or that trip to the gas station or that purchase you made on Amazon. These are all various trades, various sales. And we're going to talk about how each of these fit in this paradigm. But first, let's look at the basics. For a sale to be valid, there has to be certain conditions met. The seller and the buyer have to be sane. That's self-explanatory because if one or both parties are lacking aql, they can't make a proper decision about whether they should sell or buy something. Their transactions are not valid, shara'an. They are conducting a contract and the contract is invalid if one or both parties are lacking sanity. That's obvious. Number two, the seller and the buyer must also have rushed. And we talked a little bit about that in the module on marriage. Rushed here means a basic maturity and capacity to handle money. That doesn't mean they don't have debt. doesn't mean they don't sometimes spend lavishly or wastefully. It means that they have life experience with buying and selling, right? Let's say a kid, they just hit puberty but they've never gone out and bought and sold anything. They don't have a conception of money. And they go out with a crisp $100 bill. They don't have rushed. They don't have rushed. They don't have a concept of money and how it comes and goes. In this case, you wouldn't buy or sell to them. You wouldn't sell to them. This, and there's a difference of opinion about whether uh, minors can engage in transactions. We'll get into that later, inshallah. This is a broad overview. Likewise, the seller must consent to the sale, right? You can't go up to someone 
and say, hey, I like that jacket you have right there. You have to sell it to me or else, right? I was reading a story, you know, those stories that just pop up randomly. You don't go looking for them about a particular music artist in the 90s who is telling his story when he was a big music star. He said at that time in the 90s, he had a hit single. He was really popular. And the head of a record label approached him in a hotel with his bodyguards, took him out on the balcony and almost threw him over threatening him, telling him, you must sell us the rights of your record or else. And he sold the rights of the record. So that was a transaction, was it not? But there was a fundamental ingredient missing, which is <laughs> mutual consent. He was coerced to do that under threat of being tossed off the balcony of a hotel. Right? That's an extreme example, but it's a condition. A person can't be forced to sell something they don't want to sell. If it is theirs, they have to choose to sell it. It can't be forced or coerced. Uh, likewise, the seller must own the item being sold. Right? Does, would anyone like to buy Maqsad's phone over here? I'll sell it to you for $500. Would that be a valid transaction? No, because why? It's not mine. Uh, and there's the famous saying in Arabic, right, that applies to so many things in life. The one who doesn't have something can't give it. In this case, the one who doesn't own something can't sell it. I can't sell your car. Now, if you appoint me as your representative, that's a different story. But I just can't see some random object that belongs to someone and sell it without their permission. This is a haram transaction. Other conditions mean, uh, include the item for sale must be something known to the buyer and the seller. What particular thing it is, how much it is, what kind, etc. How many of you were here for the Module 1 classes on Aqidah? Most of you. Okay, here's a question. What's in my pocket? Actually, no. I will sell you what's in my pocket for $200. Agreed? That's my proposal. Do you accept? Would that be a valid transaction? Why not? It's unknown. You don't know what's in my pocket. You may think you know. But that would be dhan. That would be dhan. You have to have ilm. You have to have knowledge of what I am offering you before you can accept it. That transaction wouldn't be valid until you know what it is. I must say to you what it is. I must also tell you the price. And if, it, if there are a variety of different types for that object, I have to tell you which type. So what's in my pocket? One of those eyeglass cloths. I don't think it's worth $200, do you? It's a good thing you didn't accept that. So the point is you have to know. And the price has to be known as well, not just the object. Uh, this, is a, this is one of those things that when I think about it, it, it really 
grates at me because it's an experience I've had a few times in, in life in different parts of the world where people will try to uh, exchange services while not telling me the price, right? Uh, I once had someone come over to install cabinets inside of a closet. And as we were discussing the cost of the materials and the labor, I was asking him, how much is this going to cost? And this person kept on saying, no problem, don't worry about it. I'll give you a good price. And I said to him, listen, I'm sure you'll give me a good price. But I want to know what that good price is before I agree to this. You can't just start working before we agree to that price. Because what if you start working, you'll go get the materials, you start work on it, and then when you're done, you tell me $5,000 for something that would have cost $100. What am I going to do if I don't have that money or I'm not happy with that price you quoted? What now? Are we going to fight? And this person responded, Oh, you're claiming that I am in the haram You claim that I consume the haram. As I didn't claim that, I didn't say that. I'm just saying that we have to make sure the transaction is sahih, shar'an, is Islamically valid. And the person became angry at the insistence of me telling him the price. Why do you think he was angry? Because it's easy to inflate the price after all the work has been done. It's completely invalid. And this is a kind of gharar. Number six, the item must be something that can be handed over. Okay, let's say you, ho- you own a hundred acres of land. You have, a th- it's a thick forest and it's full of deer and wild turkeys. Can you tell someone, I will sell you all of the deer in my 100 acres of land for X amount of dollars? Can you do that transaction? You can't. Because you may own the land and have the rights to whatever's in the land, the, the water, the, 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 the trees, the fruits that grow on them, and the animals. But you don't have access to those animals. It would be a different story if you went on your land and you caught a turkey or a deer alive and you wanted to sell it to someone because now you have possession of it, right? It has to be something that you can hand over. You can't say, okay, give me $100 and you can have one of the deer on my property. The person hands you $100 and you say, okay, marhaban, go ahead, have at it, go catch one. They don't know where they are. They've all run into the forest. They're hiding. He's not going to get it. This is improper. How about like in Pennsylvania, there's the right for like the gas and the land. They, a lot of people sell that. That's a hard one. Yeah, it's something to look into. Like yeah, yeah. On the contract, it says like whatever is shown. So yeah, yeah. Necessarily say it's, you have this is one of those contemporary issues, and one should always pause. And, he- and look into what is actually entailed in those contracts before one can make a clear ruling on it. But for our purposes, we'll, we'll look at these examples, and those are things we can look into. Uh, number seven, the contract of sale must be pr- free of prohibited conditions. So you, you can't add conditions to the sale that are haram. You can't say, I'll sell you this bottle of juice 
with the condition that you use it to make wine. That's a false condition, right? You can't say, I will sell you this book with the condition that you use it to throw through someone's window and assault them or something. These are some ridiculous examples, but you get what I mean. You can't add prohibited terms to the sale. The item sold must also be lawful. This is something that's in common knowledge. Prohibited items would include anything haram or selling debt as that would constitute money for money, which we'll talk about later among the prohibited forms of trade. And we'll talk about this number eight in more detail later, inshallah. This is just an overview. So those are the conditions of a valid sale. And you can merge some of these together, and some of them are self-explanatory. The idea is that you need to know very clearly what you are selling as the seller, and the buyer has to know what they're buying, uh, the type, the quality, the price, and the lawfulness of it without any conditions that are prohibited. There has to be mutual consent. There has to be taradin. There has to be proposal and acceptance, which I'll, I'll talk about now. The offer and acceptance. Al-ijab wal qabul. Does that sound familiar? Where do we talk about that? In marriage. In module 7 on marriage, we mentioned that one of the conditions for the marriage contract is that there has to be ijab and qabul. There has to be proposal and acceptance between the two parties getting married. Because it's a contract, it is called aqdun nikah. Buying and selling is also an aqd. It's a transaction, it's a contract, also requiring offer and acceptance. So there has to be an offer and an acceptance of that offer, or there has to be tarad, there has to be mutual understanding that the sale is complete. A sale is not valid in sharia unless there is an express or an implied offer and acceptance. So it doesn't have to always be verbal, as we'll see soon. It's express or implied. When we say express here, we mean bilafdin sarih, a clear expression. And when we say implied, we mean there are still words used, but it doesn't mention the explicit word sale or buy or so on. So for example, you see here S and B. S is for the seller, B is for buyer. The seller says, I'll sell this to you for $50. Is that express or implied? Let's express. And B says, okay. The seller says, this is yours for 20 bucks. Is that express or implied? It's implied because we said both of these are verbal. Both of these are verbal. Express is the express, uh, the clear mention of sale, buying something. For the implied, words are still used, but it doesn't mention the word sale, but it mentions something that has that same meaning. So this is yours for $20, meaning 
This will be your possession for $20 if you agree to this transaction. That's implied. And the buyer can say, I'll take it. And that's also implied. The, the buyer can go into the store and say, I'll give you $30 for that book. And the seller can say, sure. Right? So it's, it's implied. So it doesn't really matter as long as there's clarity between two parties that this is a sale, there's a proposal and an acceptance going on. But in all of these examples, is verbalized. But how many times, because we're here in North America, we're not in Pakistan, we're not in uh, Yemen, Morocco, Egypt, wherever, we're here. How many times when you buy and sell are you even saying anything at all? Think about the last thing you bought in a store here. Did you even say anything? I'm trying to think, what's the last thing I bought? The last thing I bought was gas. What did I do? I parked at the gas station. I took my card out, put it in, removed the card, pumped the gas, and I left. I didn't talk to a single human being. So where's the offer and where's the acceptance here? Is that a valid transaction? It is, because there are other forms of transactions that take the place of offer and acceptance. And we call those mu'atat, or physical exchange sales. And the mu'atat is defined as giving the seller the price, I mean the cost of the object, and taking the item without speaking. That defines most of our transactions here. You go to the grocery store, whether you go through the self-checkout or the checkout person, the most they're going to say to you is, hello, how are you doing? Have a good evening. You're not going to them and saying, I offer to buy this six-pack of Coke for the price listed here. And they're not saying, I accept your offer. <laughs> they're not doing that. There's a price tag. There's a barcode. They're just doot, doot, doot. Your total is, and you buy it all. That's how we do it. So this mu'atat defines most of our transactions here in North America. And this is basically giving the seller the price and taking the item without speaking. So for example, the shirt has a price tag on it. You like the shirt, the price is reasonable. And you go and hand the seller or the one who is representing the seller you know, because that 18-year-old at Target, they're not the actual seller. They're representing the owner of the chain. You give them the cost. Or you put $1 into a vending machine for a Coke. Or you buy gas in the example I provided. Or if you're out of North America, let's say you go to a place. Let's say you go to Pakistan. Or let's say you go to uh, Medina. So you go to Medina, and you're in the souk, not the supermarket, where everything has a price tag. But you know that in this souk, the dozen eggs that are out on display are 20 riyal per dozen. There's no price tag, but it's common knowledge that there's 20 riyal. And so you grab the dozen eggs and you hand the seller 20 riyal, 
There was no explicit offer in acceptance, but because the price is known, you give them that money, and this is a physical exchange sale. You give them the cost, you take the item without speaking. This is permissible. This is allowed as long as it is customary and mutual agreement is understood and implied. It is customary here because we have price tags. And I personally am in favor of price tags over not having price tags because it minimizes confusion. It removes haggling and misunderstandings. You know straight away whether you have enough to purchase the item or not. And that is a form of mu'atat sale. As long as you know the price and the price tag tells you, you go and pay the person the money without saying a word, it is valid. All right? It's a typo? I'm, oh, two reals. Yeah, I should edit that. Okay. Yeah, well. 20 reals, 20 reals. Yeah. So this is permissible. So that means that most of your buying and selling, when you go to the grocery store, as long as what you're buying is halal, guess what? It's all halal transactions. Alhamdulillah. So that's where the price tags fit in into our buying and selling conditions. Um, how much time do we have? I'll give it five more minutes, inshallah. Uh, there's more to be said, but we're going to cover more details as we go through the material. Another condition, and we talked about this earlier, is that the item of sale must be ma'lum, must be known. It's not valid to sell something that is unknown. To sell something unknown is called gharar, and that forms a very large part of the prohibited transactions that we'll be talking about in the next couple of weeks. And there's various forms, and some forms are actually very, un they're, they're unavoidable and they're permitted, but then there's the avoidable forms that are prohibited. So if you say, for example, uh, yeah, I mean, gharar here means something that is ambiguous and unknown, and it's, you're taking a chance, right? So this is from ghain ra ra, gharar. So selling something unknown would be like saying, I'll sell you what's in my pocket. Or I tell you, I have a phone in my inside pocket and I'll sell it to you for $200. But there's many types of phones. You need to know what kind of phone it is. Maybe you agree and I pull out a broken flip phone from Nokia 2005. You have to know what kind of thing it is. Or if you say, I'll sell you all of the apples that grow on a tree in my property. I have a property out in the countryside and I have a nice large apple tree. You know, I'll sell you all of the apple trees for a thousand, all of the apples on the apple tree for $1,000. That's, that's expensive apples, no matter how many are on the tree. But you don't know how many are there. You don't know the quality of the apples, right? It's unknown. Likewise, if you say, let's say on that land, where you have those deer and turkey and the apple tree, 
Let's say you have a lake or a pond, and on the, in that pond you have lots of fish. And you say to someone, I'll sell you all of the fish in this pond. How many fish are in the pond? You don't know. It's not. You have to have knowledge of the thing, the amount, the, the type, and so on. Uh, this is where there's some differences of opinion. Another condition, according to many, is that the item that is for sale must be observable. So that means that it's not just sitting somewhere where you can't see it. You have to have the ability to see it in some way in order to inspect it, whether you're physically there or an accurate picture representing it and so on. So if you say, I'll sell you the shirt in my closet, right? And let's say you specify the shirt. I'll sell you my polo, my 2015 black polo shirt, extra large for X amount of dollars. You've specified the type, the quantity, all of these things, but it's in your closet and the person hasn't seen it. Now, according to the Madikis, that would be allowed. And it seems that it's allowed by the Madikis because it assumes a certain continuity within certain objects for sale. The Shafris, on the other hand, who are by far the strictest when it comes to buying and selling, they don't allow this. And perhaps you can reason, maybe because the item has undergone change in, all the, in, in the time since the person has owned it. And, in, and due to that change, if you were to see the change, you might not want to buy it, right? And there's some discussion about the extent of that. Does that apply to anything you sell or, or just some things? So for example, uh, a person says, I'll sell you my 2018 Honda Accord sitting in my garage. The Shafris would actually say that's allowed if the potential buyer has seen it before and it's something that doesn't generally change within the time that has elapsed since it was seen. So you could apply that to the shirt as well. Let's say you go to someone's house, you see a shirt, you like it. A month goes by and they say, I'll sell you that shirt. Is the shirt observable when the offer is made? No. But did you see the shirt before? Yes. And some time has elapsed. That would, that would be permitted because it's not reasonable to assume that it would undergo a drastic change. Right? A car sitting in a garage for a month wouldn't undergo a significant change. So if the person saw it before, they can agree to it later and then go buy it and pick it up, right? So these are some of the finer details. And sometimes the particular questions we get pertain to minutia related to these matters, where more investigation is required. Now, Well, seeing it doesn't only mean being physically there. If there's a, if there's a collection of the, of the item and that item is represented accurately uh, through video, through pictures, through lots of data, and you compare it to other things, you make an informed choice, 
then the exact car is not the one you have to see, but the car in general, physically or virtually, through whatever means, right? The point here is we're trying to avoid transactions that involve too many unknowns that could lead to a person buying something and not being happy with it because things that should have been disclosed were not disclosed or things that were unknown uh, came to be known and they weren't happy with it, right? If you remove those things, then you're removing most of these cases of... This is all for like buying the contract, right? Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in the next couple of sessions. Al-Khiyar al-Majlis. Backing out of a deal and the, the fiqh of that. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that, inshallah. Okay, um, we'll probably end here. Yeah, I'll probably end on this slide. The last thing we'll cover tonight. Among the conditions is that the item has to exist. I'll sell you the thing that is not in my pocket right now, but will be in my pocket two weeks from now for $200. Would that be a valid transaction? It's not, because it doesn't exist. A simpler example would be to say, I'll sell you the calf inside of that cow's belly. Now that, so the ulama say something that is either non-existent, doesn't exist right now, or it exists, but it may cease to exist in the near future. So I'll sell you the calf inside of the cow's belly. It's not permissible because we don't know, is it a male or female? Is it going to uh, be alive or dead? Is it going to be deformed? Uh, what other features, defects it may have? We don't know. It's unknown in so many ways. Or a person says, I'll sell you the milk in that cow's other udder. Now, these things may cease to exist. It may be spoiled or whatever. You know, once it's expressed from the cow and bottled and prepared and is there, you can buy it. But before that, when it's an unknown quality and quantity, you can't agree to a sale because the sale entails the thing, the quantity, the quality, and all of that. But those things are unknown when the milk is still in the udder. Does that make sense? You don't know until the milk is expressed, what quality and what quantity you're going to get. If you say, I'll sell you whatever calf this cow delivers next year, is that permissible? It's not permissible because that thing doesn't exist yet. You cannot sell something that doesn't exist. This actually opens up a lot of worms in modern day transactions. It really does. And we'll explore some of them, inshallah. But that's the general principle. I'll sell you whatever calf this cow delivers next year. It's invalid. I'll sell you all of the dates that grow from this tree next season. You don't know how many dates are going to grow from the tree. They haven't grown yet. So if the person agrees to that, what are they actually purchasing? They are purchasing something unknown. That is gharar. So neither of those things exist at the time of the offer. Are there any exceptions to this? Yes, of course. There are exceptions. There's generally two exceptions, but I don't want to go into them tonight. We'll review some of these matters next week. 
uh, and just we'll synthesize all of this. And then we'll look at a couple of those exceptions, uh, especially as they apply to us today. And then we'll go into the permissible forms of sales and the forbidden forms of transactions, the three or four types. So this will probably span, I want to say maybe four, four weeks, maybe five, inshallah ta'ala. And again, if you have any particular questions about very specific forms of transactions that are outside of the general principles or you're trying to make sense of them in light of these, you, you can email me anonymously, especially if it's something that requires expertise. You can reach out to other ulama and experts in the field. You can get those answers inshallah ta'ala. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Any, any questions or points we didn't address? So, uh, I sell furniture, I sell like used couches and things out of my garage. Mm -hmm. And I used to just buy them from Facebook marketplace and things like that because it was easier. But recently I found this um, local spot that they, uh, they basically take return items from the store. And when you do, and when I buy it from them, I understand that it's not always in the best condition. Uh, so, like for example, I bought a couch from them with a stain on it. I understood there was a stain on it, but it also didn't have legs. I didn't know that when I bought it. Is that I understood there was risk involved? The the, the deception is on their part. They have to disclose to you any defects, and if you choose to buy it knowing it has those defects, that's permissible. The risk of those defects. What do you mean by risk of defects? We when they buy it, when they take pictures, they just basically take the pictures of like it on the production line. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the box maybe one or two angles. Not the whole I see. So I didn't know it was missing feet. I knew it had a stain. So you see a picture of the couch as it looks post-manufacture the way it should look. Or and then when you buy it. No, no, no. I, I see it, but it's only like five pictures. It's not, they're not very good quality. But I have a general understanding of the quality of the product. Um, I just, for, but the pictures that I had didn't show that they didn't have feet. It's not a big deal, and I expected to have see, have unforeseen problems. But with the example you're giving, where it has to be extremely clear, is that an issue? So it seems that the issue here is not so much with you. The issue is with them, but it, it's, it's because they should be is mutual agreement they let okay let's give you a scenario uh i'll give you a personal one i needed an extra bag when i was in medina for books so i went and went shopping for a suitcase and i saw a few suitcases saw one looked like a decent deal looked like it would hold up and there was an offer he gave me the price i accepted we exchanged the money and I take it back to my hotel room, and as soon as I, I, I inspected it, but it wasn't, you know, you're in the sulk, it's loud, it's crowded. Sometimes you don't inspect things as thoroughly as you should. I get to the hotel room, I open it, and I start looking through it, and I notice that right at the spine where the bag opens and closes in that spine, underneath the cloth part, there was a piece of tape and that the tape was obviously added by whoever, and it was masking a tear that was there before I bought it. So this thing would have probably fallen apart mid-flight, who knows? So I immediately went back, and I said, 
look, I, maybe you didn't see this. Uh, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, but this has a clear defect and you didn't mention it. Here it is. I want my money back or I want to exchange for something that's proper. Um, it's the responsibility of the seller to disclose those defects. That's the problem. So if you see pictures, okay, let's say I'm selling you a couch and the couch has three broken legs and a big Kool-Aid stain on it. If I take a picture of the couch from a certain angle where it looks like it has four legs and I take a picture just the right angle so you don't see the Kool-Aid stain and then you agree to the price based on what I pur purport it to be and you take it home and see the defects, have I cheated you? Yes, because I have to disclose the defects. But if I disclose the defects, if I say it has a Kool-Aid stain, it has three legs that are broken, take it as it is. And you agree to buy it as it is knowing those defects, you could buy it, it's a valid transaction. So the onus is on them to disclose the defects. If they are deceiving you, and you didn't know it until you purchased it. The transaction is valid. You're not sinful, but they are sinful for the deception. Okay. Does that answer the question? Well, it's kind of, it's kind of understood in that field because it's, it's auctioned off. Uh -huh. There are going to be defects. Well, I just want to make sure that it's okay for me to buy something even if I don't 100% understand, understand the condition of that thing. If they put it saying as is, okay. they're basically announcing that this... Yeah, it's, it's, they, know, they, 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 they make it clear that, hey, this might be missing a part here or there. Yeah, I, see, I, think I, I think I understand where the ambiguity is. You're, you're buying it in the hope that it doesn't have those defects. So is this a kind of gamble on your part? It is, right? slightly. Yeah. Yeah. Is, yeah, this is one of those things I'd like to look into more. Because... Okay. You, you, may have, you, know, there may be, you may think that there's an answer that makes sense, but sometimes in the, man, in the, man, the minutia, the, the finer details, we, we have more clarity about the validity of those transactions. So, Allahu A'lam. But it's their job to disclose these things. Uh, Allahu A'lam. Khair. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll save the questions for the email or for next week, inshallah. Jazakum Allah, and Assalamu alaikum.